Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 12, 31 to 14, 1. But, desi- but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. You may be seated. Thank you. As we get seated, let me pray for us. Lord of life and love, help us see wondrous things in your word this morning. Make your word live to us and would you make your word live to the kids downstairs. Be with the teachers and the volunteers. Would, would they see your beauty today? You want me pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm on the team here. And yes, my wife bought me a penguin costume for tomorrow. <laughs> but I will say, ask John about the giraffe costume <laughs> that he re- he's refusing to wear. I'm just going to leave it at that and then you can ask him later. Okay. So, Question. What is essential to doing well in life? What would you say is essential to doing well in life? Is it academic achievement, doing well at school? Is it sporting achievement? I know the number of sports classes that we sent our kids to. Is it sporting achievement that helps us get ahead in life? Or is it social achievement, you know, getting to know the right people? I grew up in an environment where we were told that academic achievement was essential to getting ahead in life. And so, that's what we focused on, perhaps even obsessed with. We we put in all our time and energy and lots of our parents' money, if they could afford it, into working hard and doing well in exams. But here's the thing. (laughs) You graduate... And then you very quickly realize there's a lot more to life than doing well in exams. There's a lot of things in life that exams didn't prepare you for. Don't get me wrong, academic achievement can be very important, can be very helpful in giving you a leg up in life. But it's not the most important thing. It's not essential to doing well in life. And that's a bit of what's going on in our passage this morning. Except it wasn't academic achievement that the Corinthians were obsessed with. It was spiritual achievement. 
spiritual achievement that they measured in terms of what spiritual gifts they had. You see, the Corinthian church thought that spiritual gifts were the most important thing. It was essential to doing well in the Christian life. And so that's what they focused on, perhaps even obsessed over, focusing their time and energy on, building their identity around what spiritual gifts they had, perhaps even arguing over which spiritual gifts were the greatest. Which brings us to our section of, of, of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. And in this section that he's writing to the Corinthian church, he's writing to tell them there's more to life, there's more to the Christian life than spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are important. We've learned this earlier on in, in, the, in the letter, but they're not the most important. There's something else that is more important, that is essential, which brings us to chapter 13 the famous love passage. And, and, there's, and as you read through it, you probably would have realized there's, there's a lot for us to unpack in chapter 13, which is why we're going through this over two weeks, this week and next week. So if we don't go through the bits that you really want us to go through, don't worry. Hopefully, Brett will go through that next week. For this week, we're going to look at three things about love. Love is essential. Love is eternal. And God is love. Love is essential. Love is eternal. And God is love. So let's get into our first point. Love is essential. In 1 Corinthians, moving from chapter 12 to chapter 13, which is this morning, and then to chapter 14, is really interesting because you're moving from chapter 12, which is a chapter that nearly no one agrees about, to, to chapter 13 that nearly everyone agrees about or has a strong opinion about, and then to back to chapter 14 that, again, nearly no one agrees about. But the important thing for us to realize is that chapters 12, 13, and 14 are part of the same section. And so we cannot read chapter 13 by itself. We need to read all three chapters in light of each other in order to understand what Paul is getting at. That's why we included 12.31 and 14 verse 1 in our scripture reading. Some of you may have been puzzled by that. We do that because we want to see how chapter 13 is connected to chapter 12 that comes before and chapter 14 that comes after. Look again at 12.31. Paul writes, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. 14 verse 1, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And even as I read it, we can see it, can't we? The, the, the repetition in the, the language, how 14 verse 1 actually picks up where Paul left off in 12.31. You see, in 12.31, Paul tells the Corinthians that they should desire the higher spiritual gifts. And when he says higher spiritual gifts, he just means the gifts that more, di that more directly build up the church for the common good. And then in chapter 14, Paul picks up where he left off in 1231. In chapter 14, he teaches precisely which spiritual gifts more directly build up the church than others. But before we get from 12 to 14, we have to go through chapter 13. And so what is chapter 13 doing? Paul is using it to teach the Corinthians the way to desire the spiritual gifts. You see, he says, desire the higher spiritual gifts in, at the end of chapter 12. In chapter 14, he's telling them which spiritual gifts to desire. Chapter 13, he's saying the way to desire the spiritual gifts. Look, look at 1231 that introduces chapter 13. He writes, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, 
and I will show you a still more excellent way. You see, Paul is saying that love is the way. Love is the path to desire the higher spiritual gifts. He's not pitting love against spiritual gifts. That's not what he's doing. He's saying that love is the way to desire higher spiritual gifts. Love is essential to the use of spiritual gifts. And he goes on to make this point by stacking three verses on top of each other. Look at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Even if I had the spiritual gift to speak in every known and unknown tongue, which means language, if I do not have love, I am a noisy gong. As if using these gifts without love corrupts my very identity so that I'm no longer a person, I am just a noisy gong. Verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Even if I have the spiritual gift of prophecy to speak God's truth into someone else's life, even if, even if I have all spiritual gifts of knowledge and wisdom so that I can understand and explain everything there is to understand and explain, even if I have the gifts of every kind of faith so that I can literally remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And then Paul turns out the pressure even more in verse 3. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Even if I sacrificed myself for the sake of others, even if I sacrificed everything for the sake of the cause, if I don't have love, I am, what does Paul write? Nothing. You see, with each verse, Paul is turning up the pressure. He's turning up with the pressure more and more and more until he bursts. He bursts any misunderstanding we might have about the role of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are important, but they must be desired and practiced in the context of love because it is love that is essential. At one of our staff meetings, um, each of us had to share about our first car. And all the car lovers out there started speaking in a language in an unknown tongue that I didn't understand. They spoke about their first six-cylinder V100, three-liter, 600-horsepower, original condition pickup or something like, like that. <laughs> As you can tell, I, I don't know much about cars, but I do know this. Gas-powered cars, that is, cars that were created to run on gas, need gas to run. I do know that gas is essential. No matter how many cylinders the car has, how big the engine, how many horsepower, or how nice it looks, the car won't run if it doesn't have gas. Because it is gas that is essential. In Christ City, Paul is asking us to ask the question, have we forgotten to put the gas in our Christian lives? Love is essential to the Christian life. Have we forgotten the importance of love? Do we have love? Because without love, the Christian life is just an empty shell. It's just a fancy car that isn't going to go anywhere. Love is essential to the Christian life and Paul is calling us to seriously ask ourselves, do we have gas in the tank? Don Carson very helpfully applies verses 1 to 3 to the church today. He writes, If Paul were addressing the modern church, perhaps he would extrapolate further. 
You Christians who prove your spirituality by the amount of theological information you can cram into your heads, I tell you that such knowledge by itself proves nothing. And you who affirm the Spirit's presence in your meetings because there is a certain style of worship, whether formal and stately or exuberant and spontaneous, if your worship patterns are not expressions of love, you are spiritually bankrupt. You who insist that speaking in tongues attests a second work of the Spirit, a baptism of the Spirit, I tell you that if love does not characterize your life, there is not evidence of even a first work of the Spirit. Let me just summarize it for us. If we have not love, we are nothing. And now let me be honest, speaking as someone who is prone, as my wife will tell you, to cramming theological information into my head, but not having love, let me ask, ask the question that I've been wrestling with throughout the week. Do we have love? In our zeal to have the right doctrine, which is good and right, do we have love? In our enthusiasm, in our passion to disciple and even perhaps correct others, which is good and which is right, do we have love? Or perhaps, is there someone we need to apologize today to? Perhaps someone that we have treated in a loveless way, that is not right. Because love is essential. And we don't want to be an empty shell that is just going, not going anywhere. Love is not just essential. Paul goes on to write that love is also eternal. That's our second point for this morning. Love is eternal. Look at verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Paul is contrasting spiritual gifts with love. He's saying that spiritual gifts, such as prophecy, such as tongues, such as knowledge, they will all pass away. But love is eternal. Love will last forever. Love will never pass away. Now, don't get me wrong. Spiritual gifts are important now. They're currently needed in this world because our knowledge and our abilities are imperfect. They're incomplete. But what Paul writes is that there will come a time when the perfect comes, which means when Jesus comes again, when spiritual gifts will no longer be needed. Paul unpacks this idea in verses 11 and 12 with two helpful images, the image of a child growing up and the image of looking in a mirror. Look at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, which just refers to when I grew up to become an adult, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You see, in verse 11, Paul says that spiritual gifts are like things that children need when they're growing up. And just like grown-ups don't need the things that children need, we, when Jesus comes again, we won't need spiritual gifts anymore. Verse 12, when Paul talks about how we are he talks about how we are currently seeing things, not directly, but as if looking through at a mirror. We see it indirectly and partially. And so, because we see things indirectly and incompletely, currently, we need spiritual gifts to help us to see and know better. But when Jesus comes, 
We will know and see things completely and perfectly. And so we won't need spiritual gifts anymore. It's like using a flashlight. The other day, the power went out in our house, and so we needed a flashlight to help us to see because it was still dark. Now, it wasn't perfect. We could only see based on on the, the beam of light that was coming out from the flashlight, but it was still helpful. It was helpful until it became bright, and then we didn't need the flashlight to see anymore. And that's a bit of what's going on here. Spiritual gifts are like flashlights that we need to help us to see in the dark. But there will come a day when darkness will turn to light. And we won't need flashlights anymore. One day Jesus will come back and we will be able to see and know everything as perfectly and completely as we need to. And then we won't need spiritual gifts anymore. Spiritual gifts will pass away. But love... Love will remain. Look at verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, which just means remain. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love remain. They remain now and they remain forever. Now in some sense, our faith will be transformed to sight when we see Jesus again. But faith will remain forever, for eternity, as we obey and worship God for all of eternity. It's the same thing with hope. Hope will remain forever because, as, as we see in, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, we will be forever with the one we hope in after Jesus comes again. See, hope and faith, they will remain forever, but the greatest is love because love is foundational to everything else. Don Carson, who is, a, who is a Bible scholar, puts it this way. He says, it would be difficult to imagine the Bible saying that God is faith or that God is hope. But the Bible says that God is love. Look at 1 John 4, 16, where John writes, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides, remains in love, remains, abides in God, and God abides in Him. Which brings us to our third point, God is love. Now we're going to spend a fair amount of time in this because this is really important to unpack. See, when, when, we, when, we were, when I was studying for this, uh, for this sermon, I, 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 got, I got stuck at trying to figure out what's the point of love being eternal? Okay, love is eternal. So what? What's the point? And I realized that I was struggling to understand the point of love being eternal because I was studying it apart from God. Because actually, what makes love eternal, it is that it is rooted in the very eternal nature of God. Do you see the difference? Love is not just eternal, it is eternal because it is rooted in the very eternal nature of God. It is rooted in the fact that God is love. See, God's love for us is the reason He sent His Son to save us. And He saved us so that we could love Him and love each other. We were created because of love, to be loved and to love others. Jai Packer, who's a theologian, wrote, writes, it, writes it like this, God is love is the complete truth about God so far as the Christian is concerned. 
It means that His love finds expression in everything that He says and does. Love is foundational because it is rooted in the very essence of who God is. There's this wonderful line in the, in the story of Les Miserables that goes something like this. To love another person is to see the face of God. I love that line. To love another person is to see the face of God. And that, and that line just hooks us, doesn't it? Because there's some truth to that. God is love, and so love, in some sense, is participation in the divine. There's something supernatural about love, which is why in our culture today, love is something that everyone agrees with. Everyone wants love, everyone agrees we should love, and everyone wants to be loved. Because God is love. The problem is when we cut love from God. Tim Keller puts it this way, he describes it like cut flowers, flowers that have been cut off from their roots. I remember the first time I wanted to go to the florist to buy flowers for Jess, <laughs> and I went in, and firstly, whoa, there are so many types of flowers, and then you realize, they cost how much? <laughs> and they last for how long? A week? <laughs> Can't I just buy her dinner? which I did, but no. <laughs> we also, I also bought the flowers. I mean, what we realized is that cut flowers, flowers that have been cut from their roots, they look nice at first, but they're destined for death. Not the most romantic way to put it. <laughs> but they're, they're going to shrivel up into something that's unrecognizable and lifeless. And that's a bit of what happens when love is cut off from God, isn't it? It might look nice at first, it might smell nice at first, it might sound nice at first, but it's, eventually it's going to shrivel up. It's going to shrivel up into something unrecognizable and lifeless. Because God is love. God is the start and end of love. Without God, we just end up with a lost, misdirected love. God is not just a start and end, He's the model and means of love, which means He shows us what love should be and He enables us to love as we were created to. So without God, love becomes twisted. Twisted into something it was never supposed to be. Christ City, have we cut the flowers off from their roots? Have we cut love off from God? One way we cut love from God is when we take the truth that God is love and we flip it on His head so that love becomes God. And when love becomes God, love becomes the thing that everyone worships, that our culture agrees deserves our unquestioning allegiance. And in our culture today, in some sense, as long as something is done in the name of love, regardless of what that love means, it can no longer be questioned. In fact, when love becomes God, God is the one who is put on trial. God is the one who put on trial in the courtroom. We become the ones who decide what love is. And when we judge God based on what we think love is, we end up rejecting God <laughs> because God does not conform to the way we think love should be. And, and that's the other way we cut love from God. It's when we become the ones who decide what love is, how love should be, and how we should love. And that's what gets us into the mess. Because on one hand, we insist love is love, and each person should be free to decide what love is. 
But on the other hand, we still want to tell people how they should love. How many of us have been in situations where someone has said, if you truly want to love me, here are the specific ways you can love me. How many of us have been in situations where someone has tried to correct someone else's view of love? Oh, that's not really love. This is what love should be. See, that's what happens with cut flowers. We can't love off from God. We, we can't agree on who should decide what love is, and so each of us tries to decide for ourselves. <laughs> but then we secretly want to decide for others as well. And then we end up with a twisted, unrecognizable, lifeless imitation of something that once smelled like love. And even if we get what love should be exactly right, we have set such a high bar that we would never be able to reach. Christ City, let's not settle for cut flowers. Let's not settle for love that is a pale, lifeless imitation of true love. Let's only settle for the real thing. And the real thing has to be rooted in God. Because God is love. He is the start and end of love. He is the only one who can reveal what love should be. And He has revealed what love should be. He's revealed it in His written word and most supremely in His Son. But when we read what God has revealed, we must read all that He's revealed, not just the parts we like. You see, 1 Corinthians 13 is a favorite chapter of many of us for many of us, and it's a great starting point for what God has revealed about love. But it's not the only thing that God has revealed about love. We must read 1 Corinthians 13 in light of the rest of the Bible instead of treating it like the only page of the Bible. Because God's love is like a diamond. We need to hold it up against the light of everything He has revealed about Himself and the world. It's only when we do that can we even begin to understand the breadth and the complexity and the depth of His love for us. For example, God's love must be held up and understood in the light of sin, in the light of His hatred of sin and injustice and His promise to one day right every wrong in the world. You know what that means, don't you? It means that love can't be just do whatever you want to do. Love can't be something with no boundaries at all. It must be understood in light of other things that God has revealed, including that there is objective right and objective wrong, including the fact that God will one day right all wrongs in this world. And God hasn't just revealed what love is. He has given us His Spirit to enable us to love. Look at Romans 5 verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, God hasn't just saved you because He loves you. He has saved you so that you can love the way that you should. In previous companies that I've worked in, not this one, this institution is fantastic. Good job, John. <laughs> in previous companies I've worked in, I've had colleagues who lived by, by the thinking of fake it till you make it. That's how you get big companies to hire you. 
That's how you get brand names to give you their business. You fake it till you make it. You claim something about yourself that isn't true. And then if you, you, you hope in the hope that if you work hard enough, for long enough, you try hard enough, eventually it will become true. And if it doesn't become true, well, too bad for the company that fell for it. The Christian life can feel like that sometimes, can't it? Like living the life of fake it till we make it. Like putting on an act. Like, like just trying to pretend to be someone we are not. We look at the list of things that the Bible said we should, the Bible says we should do and shouldn't do. And then we try to fake it till we make it. We try our very, very best to live up to those standards till we make it. But then, to be honest, we don't. It feels like an act. It feels like pretending to be someone we're not. And, and eventually, we, we get found out, don't we? We get found out when we, live, we fail to live up to the way that we think every Christian should or shouldn't. This kind of thinking looks at verses 4 to 7 of 1 Corinthians 13 and just sees a list of burdens and standards that are discouraging because they are things we can never live up to. Just think about this past week. I haven't been patient or kind with my family. I'm so envious about the family the other person has. I think I might have been a little rude to my coworker. I didn't mean to, but I insisted on things my own way. I, I, I was a bit tired, so to be honest, I think I got a bit short-tempered and irritable. I find myself storing up in my heart all those wrongs that have been done against me. I can't help it. I had enough of everything, so one day I just snapped. Sound familiar? But to be honest, that's my week. How about yours? Christ said, praise God that the Christian life is not the life of fake it till you make it. It's not pretending to be someone you're not. It's living as the new person that you already are in Christ. Do you see the difference? The Christian life is not pretending to be someone you're not. It's living as the new person, the new creation you already are in Christ. God doesn't call us to be someone we're not. He doesn't call us to a life of fake it till you make it. He calls us to be the new person we have already become in Him and He has given us His Spirit so we can become that person. Now, the truth is, you might not feel like a new person. You might not yet behave like that new person. You might not think or or speak, or do anything remotely resembling that new person. But you are that new person. Because the Christian faith is, is this sort of weird tension of the now and not yet. You have already been a new person. The moment you put your faith in Christ, you have become the new person, but you are also becoming that new person. God's Spirit is slowly transforming you to become that new person you already are. That's why the Christian life is not the language of you should, but you can and you will. Let me say that again. The Christian life is not the language of you should, it's the language of you can and you will. You see, you have already become a new person in Christ. And God has already given you His Spirit so that you can 
And you will live a new life as that person. There will be ups and there will be downs. There will be days when you look nothing like that new person. But know this, you are that new person. And when you don't believe it, look to the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished. You see, when, when Paul talks about the importance of having love in verses 1 to 3, he says, but have not love, but have not love. God isn't calling us to force love out of nothing. He's not calling us to manufacture love that we don't have. No, God is calling us to respond to the love that He first loved us with, the love that has been poured into our hearts by His Spirit. You see, Christ City, in verse 31, when Paul talks about a better way, that way is not a what, it's a who. And his name is King Jesus. We need to see this. When Paul talks about a better way to live, that better way is not a what, it's a who. And his name is King Jesus, gentle King Jesus. Kind King Jesus. The one who gave his life for you, King Jesus. He loves us not because we are lovely, but we have been made lovely because He loves us. He loves us not because we are lovely, but, be, but we have been made lovely because He loves us. Some of you have asked me, some of you have asked me, is it okay if I join the church when I am struggling to find a job. Some of you have asked, is it okay if I come to church when I'm still struggling with addiction? Some of you may be thinking right now, is it okay that I'm sitting here when I don't have my life together? Even when I don't look lovely, when I'm not lovely? The answer is yes. Yes, a thousand times yes. God doesn't love you because you are lovely. But know this, you have been made lovely because He loves you. Let me say this another way. God doesn't love us because of how well we love. But because He loves us, now we can love well. And His Spirit pours His love into our hearts. You see, God is love. He loves us just as we are. You can come with, every, with all your stuff. You can come and know that He loves you just as you are, just as you were. But also know this, He's not going to leave you as you are. Because God loves us, He's not going to leave us as we are. He's going to be transforming us into the new person we already are in Christ. And He's given us His Spirit to transform each of us into that new person He has saved us to be. Now, each of us are on different paths. Each of us, some of us change faster than others, but we're all being changed. Because when God, just as much as God has promised each of us gifts of His Spirit, He has promised us fruit of His Spirit. Fruit that looks like the new person you have, you already are and you are going to become in Christ. Christ City, we've been given God's Spirit. So chapter 30 is not a list of burdens, it's a list of promises. 
Promises of who Jesus is and who we will be by His Spirit working in us. And we praise God for that. Let's stand as you respond to God's Word.